There are people you know that once walked alongside you in the Christian faith who no longer profess Christ. Probably true of a lot of you. There are people you know with whom you once had sweet Christian fellowship who no longer claim to be Christians. Many of us have that experience. There are some people who once were a spiritual encouragement to you. Maybe somebody that you even looked up to in the faith who have since renounced the faith. There are people who once claimed to name the name of Jesus and who associated with the church who actually went on to harm individuals and to hurt them or to offend them spiritually and then gone on to bring shame to the name of Jesus and the reputation of his church. And so this morning I simply want to ask and maybe answer the question, how do we understand such situations or how do we understand such people? What category do we have as believers to understand those who for a time seem to be Christians, continue in the faith, but then suddenly defect from the faith? How do we categorize such people? How do we understand those situations? What do such situations say about the nature of salvation and the nature of faith? Well, in Luke chapter 22, in the passage we're going to look at this morning, we find the most notorious example of one who began to follow Jesus but then betrayed him. We're going to talk about Judas. Specifically, we're just going to ask the question, what do we do with Judas? Let's read Luke 22, verse 1 through 6. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Then down to verse 22, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me, Jesus says, is with me on the table. This is at the Last Supper. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Then down to verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Then look in verse 3. It says, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Here's a man who's numbered along with the other apostles. And yet he is a man who betrays Jesus. So how do we understand this? Should Judas's betrayal of Jesus and his defection from the faith throw us all into some theological tizzy? I don't have any category for this. Uh, How do I uh, understand this? Or maybe I should rethink the nature of salvation. Should we devise some view of the faith which allows for the possibility of one who's genuinely saved but can then go on to lose their salvation? Or is there a better way to understand this? 
Is there a way to understand Judas and his apostasy in a way consistent with everything else we know about God and his faithfulness and salvation? Well, first, let's deal with the notion that Judas was a genuine believer who lost his salvation. In John chapter 17, verse 12, we find Jesus praying to the Father. This is his high priestly prayer. He's praying to the Father, and he's saying to the Father, Father, I have accomplished all the work that you gave me to do. And he says this in John 17, verse 12. He says, while I was with them, that is uh, his people, his disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, he says, except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus is praying to the Father and saying, I've done the work that you've given me to do. It's all done. And there's an exception there. However, Judas uh, has betrayed the son of of destruction. uh, And Jesus says that the scripture might be fulfilled. In other words, this was not unforeseen. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus is saying, this is the will of my father, that I lose nothing that he gives me. John 17, he says, mission accomplished. I've done it. I've kept everything that you've given me to keep. Jesus came down from heaven to do the will of the father. The father's will. Don't lose anything. Are we going to suggest this morning that Jesus has failed to do the will of the Father by losing one whom the Father has given him to keep? I hope not. John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And again, what was that work? John 17, 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and I've come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. He's saying, I did it. Mission accomplished. So is Jesus including Judas in all of that? Is he indicating that Judas also has kept his word? No. Is he saying that Judas has also believed that he came from God? No. Perhaps some would be so bold as to suggest that at this point in Christ's ministry, he was unaware that Jesus was, that Judas was going to betray him. So maybe he's praying this way. I've accomplished your will. I've kept everybody, not knowing that Judas, well, well, obviously not. Because he says in John 17 again, that I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. He knew exactly what was going on. So what do we learn? Jesus came to perfectly fulfill the will of the Father. The Father's will was that Christ would receive and keep everyone whom the Father gave him, guarding them and keeping them in the faith. That Christ, fully understanding Judas' coming betrayal, declares that he's accomplished all that the Father gave him to do. We also learn, I think, that Judas was not then a genuine believer. He was not one who was given to Christ from the Father. He was not one for whose faith Christ was praying to sustain. Otherwise, Jesus could never claim that he perfectly fulfilled the will of the Father in keeping and not losing any whom the Father gave him. To believe that Judas was a genuine Christian, but one who lost his salvation, is to believe one or all of these things. First, Jesus was unable to accomplish the work that the Father gave him to do. 
Two, that the Father does not hear Christ's prayer. Because in John 17, 11, he prays to the Father and says, Father, you keep them in your name. Well, Judas wasn't kept in his name, so did the Father then fail to hear the prayer of Jesus? Well, in John chapter 11, verse 41, Jesus prays to the Father and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And then he says this, I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on the count of the people that were standing around. He's saying, Father, I know that you hear and you answer every prayer that I pray. So it's either to suggest that Jesus is unable to accomplish the work that the Father gave him, that the Father does not hear the prayer of Christ, or perhaps that the Father is unable to answer Christ's prayer, that he keep all of his disciples. That's a gigantic problem, because it's by God's power that all of us are actually guarded until the end. John 10, 27 Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them me to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So now, all of a sudden, we have a situation where if one is a Christian, but then not a Christian saved, and then not saved, uh, either you have Jesus who's deficient, in accomplishing the Father's will, but you also have a situation where what you're saying is the Father is not able then to keep these in the faith and to keep one from snatching them out of his hand. Besides all this, we learn in 1 Peter chapter 1 that anyone who's saved, who perseveres in the faith, is doing so because God the Father is guarding them through faith. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, if you're a Christian this morning, you persevere in the faith. Genuine believers who receive Christ as Savior and Lord will make it all the way to glorification, all the way uh, to full and final glorification in the end. Why? By our own power? No, by the power of God. But he guards us, Peter says, through faith. So he maintains and sustains our faith so that those who are genuine believers remain uh, faithful and loyal to Christ all the way to the end. That's the power of God. That's the power of Christ. So your security and my security, when it comes to our salvation, rests in God's eternal purposes. God is for us, according to Romans chapter 8. Christ is interceding for us. The permanence of our faith is the product of the power of God and the interceding work of Christ. So if any believer can be said to lose their salvation, you're striking right to the heart of the power of God. So then, if salvation is entirely secure and guarded by God and Christ and can never be lost, how do you explain Judas? How do you explain your friends? How do you explain your relatives? How do you explain that spiritual mentor that you once had who has renounced the faith? You say, well, they were never saved. Well, okay, but then we do have some questions to answer. How do you explain the apparent faith? How how do you explain the fact that some labor alongside you in serving Christ for a time? How do you explain the fact that some actually do ministry and seem to be fruitful in it? How could this lack of salvation go unnoticed by those who are closest companions to such people? How could such a person continue like Judas for a time right alongside Christ? I mean, for Judas, it was three years masquerading as a Christian while actually being an imposter. 
These are important questions. Many have stumbled in their faith or their theology because they don't understand how to answer these questions. That's why this morning's message is important. Some have their own faith shaken by the failures of such people. Some distraught by their lack of theological answers to such questions that they begin to adopt errant views of salvation and security. Others imagine that there are whole categories of people out there that have walked away from the faith, but they're still genuine believers, even though there's an apparent lack of evidence of genuine salvation. And they create whole categories, which they might call the carnal Christian or the carnal believer. In order to avoid those errors, we're going to just take some time to explore Scripture and see what the Bible has to say about such individuals. And again, we're going to use that. Uh, we're going to use Judas as kind of the archetype of the apostate, and see what we can learn from his sad situation. First of all, what we learn is that those who leave the faith, and we're going to use the word apostate, right? Those who apostatize from the faith, sometimes point number one are indistinguishable from the genuine. Sometimes they're indistinguishable from the genuine. What I want you to get from all these points is to understand the nature of the kingdom of God and even the nature of the church so that when you encounter such people, you're not shaken. You understand we have biblical categories and understanding for such situations. So what we learn first and foremost is that sometimes the apostates, those imposters who are not genuine believers, uh, are indistinguishable from the genuine. Judas was numbered with the twelve. He was never an outsider. It's not as if he was that one where all the 11 were like, well, we all understand that Judas, I mean, he's, there's something wrong with that guy. Uh, that, that was never the case with the 12 or the 11 looking at Judas. He was never viewed with suspicion. In fact, at the Last Supper, when Jesus says that there's one among them who would betray him, what is the question of all the disciples? Jesus says, there's somebody among us who's going to betray me. It's not as if all the 11 turned to look at Judas. Well, we know, obviously, who is going to be. No, in fact, they all began to doubt themselves. Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? For those disciples, it made more sense to doubt themselves than to doubt Judas. As far as the other disciples were concerned, there was nothing about Judas at that time uh, that betrayed his claims of faith. There was no red flags. There was no alarm bells. Uh, He was numbered among the twelve. What we learn through Jesus is that this is simply the nature of the kingdom. Sometimes imposters and false believers grow up right alongside those who are genuine believers, and for a time they're indistinguishable from one another. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives a parable, and he says this, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus is saying this is the nature of the kingdom of God. You have good seed and you have wheat that grows. Those are those ones who receive the gospel, grow up with genuine believers. 
But at the same time, there's an enemy who is sowing bad seed, weeds. But what happens? They grow up together, and at a time when these things are young, they look very similar. It's hard to tell the weed from the wheat at first until they come and one produces proper fruit and the other one produces uh, bad fruit. At that point, you can see the difference. But the whole point in all of this is that for a time, the two grow together and no one knows the difference until you see the fruit. And what's the question? Should we go and gather them up? And Jesus says, no, don't, don't go gather them up because in trying to weed out the weeds, you may inadvertently pull out some of the wheat. That's how indistinguishable they happen to be at this period. And so don't make it your mission. We're going to see that later. Don't make it your mission to go and pull up all the weeds because you know what? Uh, you're going to come across some maybe young believers, some immature believers, some genuine believers who maybe falter in their faith, and you're going to say, ah, that's one of those weeds, and you yank it out, you've made a mistake, right? Uh, but the point is, these things are indistinguishable for a time. It would be naive for any church to look across the congregation and say, everybody who claims to be a believer here is a genuine believer. That'd be naive. That's not the nature of the kingdom. Uh, there's wheat and there's weeds, and there will be weeds and weeds until when? Until the final judgment. And so uh, some will make themselves known now, but ultimately what we see here in the parable of Matthew 13 is uh, in Jesus' picture is that it's not until the final judgment when the reapers, the harvesters come and they distinguish. So there are imposters, there are apostates, there are defectors, and sometimes, oftentimes, they look like the real deal for a time. Sometimes all the way to the final judgment. So that's number one. Number two, sometimes such imposters and apostates and defectors, learning from Jesus' example, sometimes these are those who have experienced immense spiritual privilege. They have experienced immense spiritual privilege. Judas was one of the most spiritually privileged men in the history of the world. Out of all those who could have walked alongside Jesus, Jesus chose 12. Judas got to hear Christ teach for three years. He got to hear the public teaching, but he was also privileged to hear the private teaching as well. When Christ spoke in parables to the crowd, he would turn to his disciples and give the interpretation of those parables, and Judas was privileged to hear that. Judas got to see Christ's miracles up close. He had a backstage pass. He got to witness Christ in his quiet moments within the fellowship of the disciples. He got to witness Christ's compassion. He got to hear Christ's heart. Again, there's only 12 who are granted this privilege, and Judas was one of those. He had immense spiritual privilege through the exposure, uh, through his exposure to genuine spirituality. Jesus said to him and the others in Luke chapter 10, Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Above all men you are blessed. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear and did not hear it. Judas had that privilege. We see this again in John 6, when a host of Christ's disciples abandoned him Almost immediately after witnessing Christ healing many sick and feeding 5,000 miraculously in John chapter 6. One of the saddest chapters in the New Testament is John chapter 6. By the way, in the new year, when we get back to an exposition of the book of John, we're going to start up in John chapter 6. But Jesus, it says in John 6.61, knowing in himself that his disciples, 
his disciples were grumbling about this. That is his teaching about having to eat the flesh of uh, his flesh and drink his blood and so on. That's a discussion for another time. But uh, that was a hard saying. They didn't understand it and they were offended by it. He says, do you take offense at this? Then what if, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But listen, he says, but there are some of you who do not believe. Well, who's he talking to? Well, we know from verse 61, he's talking to his disciples. Not the 12, but he's talking to the crowds of disciples. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Among the masses of those who were following Jesus and would call themselves his disciples, Jesus knew that there were some among who didn't believe. By the way, Jesus still knows who it is among those who claim his name who actually do not believe. And he said in verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And then look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They were included in the crowd. They heard his teaching. They saw his miracles. And it says that they were offended by him at some point, And then they, who once claimed his name, don't walk with him anymore. The writer of Hebrews deals with such people. He addresses those who have had all spiritual advantages. They heard the gospel. They understood the gospel. They partook of the fellowship of the church. They witnessed and experienced the working of the Holy Spirit, even continued in the faith for a time, yet eventually they chose to abandon Christ. Return back to the sacrificial system of Judaism. Hebrews 6.4 says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up for contempt. These are those who heard, they heard the gospel, they understood the gospel, uh, they experienced the working of the Holy Spirit. They got to see this stuff up front. These are those in the church who continue. They're among us. Uh, they sing the songs, and maybe they even weep when they hear preaching, and maybe even serve with you in ministry. They have all the spiritual privilege and all the spiritual experience, but deep down in their heart, they're actually not genuine believers. What a warning. I often think when I see passages like this of those who have grown up or are growing up in Christian homes, being exposed to the gospel, have Christian parents, exposing you to the word of God, encouraging you on to faith, talking to you about Jesus. You're in church. You're uh, here rubbing shoulders with, with Christian people. You maybe even participate in the Lord's table. I mean, you're here and you have those experiences, but none of that means anything. If you don't first and foremost on a personal level, uh, if you haven't, first and foremost, on a personal level, receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. But these are individuals with all spiritual privilege. That was Judas. Indistinguishable from the genuine, sometimes immersed in spiritual privilege. And the next one, well, we've already touched on this, so we'll go quick. We'll just say sometimes such individuals even serve in ministry. Judas was among those in Luke chapter 9. It says that Jesus called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. Well, that's interesting. Judas had power and authority over demons? I don't. It says he called the 12 together, gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. 
And they went in verse 6 of Luke 9, and they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. It seems to me that Judas is part of that crowd. He's preaching the gospel. You say, well, that can't be... uh, You think about your own experience and say, you know what, there's individuals that I know, and this is where we get confused. There are individuals that I know, and their salvation must have been genuine because I saw them working for Christ. I saw them having apparent fruit from their labors. How in the world could that happen if they were not genuine believers? They must have just lost what they had, right? I mean, that's where our mind goes. But that's not the New Testament testimony, because Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, listen, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? Well, that sounds just like Luke 9 that we just read. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Sometimes those who apostatize, sometimes those who defect from the faith, have previously worked in ministry and apparently showed some semblance of fruit from their labors. So don't get confused by that. Don't allow that to throw you in some theological tizzy, and now you're rethinking the whole nature of salvation and so on. You can have it, and then you can lose it. God adopts you, and then he kicks you out of the family. You're granted eternal life. But wait, it wasn't eternal. We're going to take that back. Uh, don't, don't create some new category to understand such individuals because the Bible describes those exact situations uh, without compromising uh, our understanding of genuine salvation. Sometimes, also, next point, they're part of intimate Christian fellowship, which I just mentioned. But Psalm 55, verse 12, a prophecy of Judas' betrayal of Jesus. It says, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from it. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. And so you've had that experience that man or woman with whom you once had sweet counsel together, sweet fellowship together, and you've allowed their walking away from the faith to cause you to rethink salvation, well, don't do it. There's categories for this. We understand this biblically. Judas was present at the most intimate of dinners when he decided to betray Jesus. We're going to have the hardest time to cope with the defection of those who claim to be Christians when... It happens to be those with whom we served in ministry. It may come a time when one whom we've prayed with, wept with, labored alongside, abandons the faith. Then we're going to go in our mind and recount those times of sweet fellowship. We were encouraged by their apparent commitment. They were encouraged by our, our commitment. You, you'll look at the wonderful Christian fellowship that you experienced with such individuals. You're going to struggle to accept the reality that th- these were never genuinely saved with your unwillingness to accept the possibility that they weren't genuinely saved, however, again, comes incredible dangers. You determine that they are genuinely saved, despite their falling away, and again, you create this new category of an uncommitted disciple. Or you decide that they must have been saved, and now they're not, thus creating an unbiblical understanding of salvation. Or you're so impressed by their apparent faith at one time that you cannot accept that it was not genuine, and so your entire understanding of faith and salvation is shaken. 
you begin to think, well, if their faith wasn't genuine, then maybe my faith isn't genuine. How can I call myself a believer if uh, I viewed them as spiritual giants compared to me and they renounced the faith? And so now you're shaken and doubtful. But none of those options will do. We have to be willing to accept the reality that some with whom we've had what appeared to be sweet Christian fellowship may fall away from the faith and prove that they were weeds among the weeds. Paul experienced this. Colossians chapter 4, he talks about, he's just greeting the Colossians, and he says that he's with Luke, the beloved physician. And he says uh, that Luke greets you, and he says, so does Demas. Demas was his fellow laborer. Philemon 23 of 24, Paul again giving a closing greeting, and he speaks of Epaphras, his fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. He says he sends greetings to you, and so, so does Mark and Aristarchus. And he says Demas and Luke, he says, my fellow workers, sweet companionship, laboring alongside one another. But then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas, what happened to Demas? Demas is with Paul when he writes the Colossae. He's with Paul when he writes uh, uh, the letter to Philemon. He's, he's, he's there, and he's working, and then suddenly we find that Demas has deserted him. Why? In love with the present world. Well, this reminds us of Jesus' parable of the soils. There's some of that seed that hits the pathway. The birds come, they eat it. That's the devil snatches that away. No spiritual sensitivity whatsoever. Doesn't respond to the gospel. Uh, there's some of that seed that falls on weedy ground, right? And, and it takes root and it sprouts up, but then it gets choked out. There's no sunlight. There's no nutrients because all these cares of the world uh, rob that seed from what it needs to mature. That's the idea here. Demas loved the world more than he loved Jesus. Choked out the faith. What does it prove? It proved that that was not genuine faith to begin with. So, there are those with whom we continue in sweet fellowship and labor who prove not to be genuine. And there's a biblical category for that. We see that scripturally. Next of all, sometimes such soon-to-be apostates have strong reputations of trustworthiness as believers. I mean, Judas, again, was not a second-class believer. In fact, he was entrusted with the money, wasn't he? I mean, of all the 12, if you're going to say, okay, who, who should be taking care of our finances? You're going to look for that guy who seems to be trustworthy. You're not going to give it to the thief, right? Uh, you're going to give it to the, probably the one that you think has the greatest character and integrity. And uh, Judas was that guy, apparently. And so among the 12, Judas was the one who was the treasurer. Interesting. So he had a strong reputation of trustworthiness, even though... Jesus says, frankly, uh, that he was influenced by Satan. Next of all, sometimes individuals, apostates, those who will go on to renounce Christ, sometimes you could look at their lives and say, you know what, I can look at points in their life where they seem to show evidence of genuine repentance. Matthew chapter 27, after Judas betrays Jesus, he regrets what he did. When he sees the consequence of him taking money to betray Jesus, he cries out, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. 
and the chief priests to whom he's speaking are so cold and callous. He's looking for some like uh, consolation, but the response is simply, what is that to us? We don't care. See to that yourself. You go deal with that. You go deal with your conscience. He threw down the pieces of silver and he went and he killed himself. That's remorse. Some might look at that and say, well, he repented. Oh, that wasn't genuine repentance. That was worldly remorse. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces, uh, worldly grief produces death. Yeah, he was remorseful. He didn't like the consequences of what he had done. Maybe at that point he had that crisis understanding that his soul was at stake, but there's no indication that this was a genuine repentance. So at times you can look at an apostate's life. You can look at even their walk and say, you know what? There seem to be glimmers of repentance there, but it's not genuine. Next of all, we've already touched on this. Sometimes such individuals will continue all the way to the judgment, all the way to the judgment. There are times in your Christian life and my Christian life where we see individuals who claim Christ and over time, there's red flags. Over time, in this life, we see that uh, they grow cold and they maybe get drawn away uh, by other relationships or other desires or other priorities, whatever it may be, and they kind of make that fruit known now. So the weed has grown up, the weed has produced fruit, and we say, wait a second, that's not wheat. That fruit's not wheat. That's a different kind of fruit. Uh, and they make that known now. But other times, there's those who continue all the way to the end, and we will not know in this life. But those are those who will stand before Christ, and Christ will look at them and say, I never knew you. And, we'll be, and we'll, we will look at that and say, what? This is one with whom I'm labored. labored. This is one with whom I prayed. Uh, this is one uh, who I looked up to for their faith. And we realize that they were imposters the whole time. So in review... Sometimes such individuals are indistinguishable from the genuine. Sometimes they are those who have experienced immense spiritual privilege. Sometimes they are those who serve in ministry. Sometimes they're part of intimate Christian fellowship. Sometimes they even had a strong reputation of trustworthiness as a believer. Sometimes they seem to show evidence of repentance. Sometimes they continue all the way to the judgment, so that it's only with 2020 hindsight that we can look back and say, Judas wasn't genuine. How does this happen? Well, it happens by satanic activity. We see in the parable of the sower that it's Satan who comes. We see in the parable of the wheat and the tares that it's Satan who sows the bad seed. With Judas, we see from Jesus himself in John 6, he outright calls Judas a devil. He says, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? So we understand there's satanic activity here. Satan entered Judas when he went to betray Jesus. So how does this happen? Well, satanic activity, sinful affections, sure. People giving into their own lusts, people loving the present world, people choosing other relationships over Jesus, people who can't handle trials. Uh, that's the parable of the sower when the sun comes up and it just burns out that seed that is taking root in the shallow soil. All these things, the cares of this life and so on, all of these things contribute really to uh, press on the faith of those who are disingenuine and uh, to prove that they are apostates. So in all of that, what comfort then can we take during the crisis of one falling away? Well, first of all, just understand that this is predicted. It's predicted repeatedly by Jesus in his parables of the kingdom. We have categories for this. 
So parable of the sower, we know that only one of those seeds sprouts out, produces fruit, right? There's categories for this. His parable of the wheat and the weeds, he says it's going to go right alongside the wheat, their weeds, so, so there's categories for this. He gives another parable, the dragnet. This is like the kingdom of heaven. You have a ship and you have a dragnet and it drags along the bottom of the lake and it pulls up all kinds of stuff. You've got some good fish in there that you're going to eat, but you also got a tin can. You also got an old shoe. You also got other things that you're not going to eat that are disgusting. It all comes up together in the dragnet. And you know what? The kingdom of God is like this. The gospel goes out and look at what it attracts. And uh, it's a mixed bag sometimes. Uh, also, what? We see this proven repeatedly through Christ's ministry. John 6, those who call themselves disciples, and then they turn away from Christ. Judas, one of the 12, turns away from Christ. And we understand that this also is experienced by the apostles. Paul talks about those who uh, turned away from him, who renounced the faith. you got Demas in Philippians 1. He talks about those who are preaching insincerely to afflict him in his imprisonment. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says that you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. Paul experienced this. Understand also that as long as we are in this phase of the kingdom, there will always be an active enemy of the kingdom. I mean, be sober, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. How then should we deal with the reality that the kingdom will see defectors in conclusion? Well, we're going to be preemptive. What we're going to do as a church is we just do our due diligence to make sure we preach a pure gospel. Make sure the gospel is undiluted. We're preaching Christ. We're preaching repentance. Uh, we're preaching genuine faith, right? I mean, we're preaching. We're getting the gospel right. We're doing our due diligence, understanding that there are, are always going to be some false converts. I'm going to baptize some who are not genuine believers. I'm not saying this about Elsie, okay? But there's times I'm going to baptize people who over time are going to prove not to be genuine, right? That's the nature of the kingdom. So knowing that, Let's make sure the gospel is pure. Let's do our due diligence to ensure that the gospel we preach is absolutely pure because even with a pure gospel, you're going to get false converts. So you better ensure that you're not diluting the gospel and then multiplying false converts through a bad gospel. So get the gospel right. Next of all, make ample use of the means of grace because in a church like this, what do we have? Uh, we got something like baptism, which is like kind of guards the front gate. We want to hear a salvation testimony. We're not going to affirm somebody's salvation testimony until we hear their understanding of the gospel. And so we guard the front gate that way. We do something like the Lord's table. What is this? We're going to do this in a minute. As we partake of the Lord's table together, what we are all saying to one another is we continue to affirm the salvation testimony of one another. I recognize you as a brother or sister, and so I'm going to commune with you together as one body. And so we affirm that through the Lord's table. And we give a warning. Do some self-examination. Make sure you, that you're in the faith. Confess your sin, right? And uh, persevere in the faith. And so uh, the Lord's table is kind of like that checkpoint. On one end, you got baptism. You got this continual checkpoint of the Lord's table to do self-examination, to ensure and to potentially expose those who are not genuine. And then on the back door, what do we have? We have something called church discipline. And with that, we have those who maybe prove themselves not to be genuine believers. Uh, you have the process of church discipline, which is designed either to present them with their sin, leading them to repentance, or to expose the rebellion. 
through their lack of repentance. And then the church removes their affirmation that that one is a genuine believer, and they're removed from the fellowship. Uh, but a church has to be faithful, right? You got to be faithful with baptism. You got to be faithful with the Lord's table. You got to be faithful with church discipline. And so, and in the middle of all of that, what? Amongst all of that, ensure that the means of grace are functioning in the church. Ensure that the means of grace are functioning in the church. And so what? we got the Word, and we've got prayer, and we've got fellowship, and we've got encouragement, and we've got admonishment. We've got the singing of the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, and we've got the ordinances. We've got all these means of grace that need to be functioning all the time in the church. Why? To grow us in the faith, sure, but those means also become pressure upon individuals who are not genuine. As you're preaching the Word, and it brings conviction, and it brings exposure, well, that serves a purpose. When you have the accountability of the fellowship of the church, so your brother or sister is coming to you and say, hey, and how are you doing in the faith? Or, you know what, I've seen your life, and it seems to be going in this direction, and it doesn't seem uh, to, to be right. How does that individual respond to that? Uh, these are the means of grace coming to bear and applying pressure to, to us as believers, continually strengthening us and proving the genuineness of our faith. Well, if those are all functioning, maybe they're also going to serve to expose those who are not genuine. And we say, how else uh, do we deal with this reality uh, that there are always false among the genuine, well, looking at Jesus' parable of the weeds and the wheat, we do not make it a ministry to go out trying to root out the false. What we're going to do is focus on the means of grace to grow. We're going to recognize that through all of that that I just said, uh, some will just naturally be exposed as not being genuine. We're not going to make it a ministry to go and try to pull out those that we think are false. Just understand this is the nature of the kingdom now. There's going to be false among the genuine. And they'll be exposed over time. And our job is just to do due diligence to make sure we're functioning properly as a church. So in response, don't be discouraged as if you have no theological category to understand those who walk away from the faith. Because the New Testament is explicit that this is the nature of this phase of the kingdom. Next of all, do some self-examination. Make sure you're not one of those individuals, right? And uh, ensure that you are in the faith. Next of all, I would say, if there's one that you see faltering and struggling and maybe sin in their life and so on, maybe become distant from the fellowship of the church, maybe they've been absent for a time, do not be so quick to say, ah, Judas. Understand that in the Christian walk, we have ups and downs and we have struggles. Sometimes genuine believers fall into unfortunate patterns of sin in their lives, and that's why we have one another, and that's why we have the means. And so pray for that individual. Seek that individual. Pray that they could prove the genuineness of their faith. We pray that way sometimes Sunday night for those on our member care list. Lord, help them to prove the genuineness of their faith. Why do I say don't give up on them? Do we have a category for that? I mean, people who seem to kind of go right to the threshold of defection, but then come back? Well, yeah, because there's a man named Peter. Peter, the night that Jesus was being betrayed, faced the ultimate test. And Jesus prepared him for that and said, Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Hey, it's the same Satan that entered into Judas. Well, now Satan's got uh, Peter in his crosshairs. But Jesus said, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He says this to Peter, but when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. 
Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you even know me. And sure enough, Matthew 26, Peter then begins to invoke a curse on himself and begin to swear, I do not know that man. Immediately the rooster crows. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And what does it say about Peter? He went out and wept bitterly. But the difference between Judas's going out and apparently repenting and then killing himself and Peter is that Peter was genuinely saved. He went out and wept bitterly. Jesus prayed that his faith would not fail, and his faith did not fail. And later on, post-resurrection, Jesus appears to Peter, and he gives Peter an opportunity to answer his three denials of three affirmations. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? You know that I love you. And Christ, in his wonderful compassion and mercy, restores Peter. Not because Peter had something and then lost it, But Peter, through the very same trial and pressures that Judas experienced, reared up under that and proved the genuineness of his faith. So I say, don't give up on Peter, right? Don't give up on Peter. Uh, uh, Hang in there. Pray. Seek to uh, counsel. Seek to uh, reach out to and express the love of Christ to that individual. Us as a church body, pray for that individual. Don't give up. Don't be so quick to classify individuals as Judas. However, when they do defect, don't allow that to shake your faith. Understand the Bible speaks to this, has categories for it. Jesus warned us about it, and uh, we can understand it uh, very plainly. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we just think about those that we know in this congregation this morning are represented. Experiences where people have seen friends, family members, those with whom they once had sweet Christian fellowship, those that maybe even they looked up to in the faith, uh, who now don't even claim the name of Christ. I pray that you'd help us to submit to your word and to understand that the Bible does speak to these situations. Pray, first of all, that you'd help us not to give up on others. Help us to seek to apply the means of grace to these individuals who once claimed Christ, because we don't want to be so quick to dismiss and to just call somebody an unbeliever. We Understand that in this life, we're imperfect. Uh, We all struggle. Uh, We exist in these mortal frames. We are still subject to the passions of the flesh. We're still subject to the influence of the world. And so there are times where all of us may struggle and even go through patterns sometimes of of sin. Uh, Your design, however, is for the means of grace to be applied to us and uh, so that we can prove the genuineness of our faith through repentance. So use us in the lives of others who appear to have defected, help us to be your tools to be used by you to apply the means of grace in these individuals' lives uh, as we pray for them that perhaps they could prove the genuineness of their faith through repentance. So help us not to be quick to give up on others. But then, Lord, there are those who have clearly proven themselves to be unbelievers. Help us to understand those situations biblically as we consider the apparent fruit and the apparent sweet fellowship that we had, help us not to then consequently begin to rethink salvation and invent some new category of saved and then unsaved or create some terrible picture of Jesus praying for those who belong to him but then being, failing to keep them. Uh, help us to understand these things accurately, biblically. Uh, and then, Lord, help us all to do the necessary self-examination 
Um, Help us to persevere in the faith. Help us to see whether or not we are in the faith. And help us as a church to be faithful. Faithful in preaching the gospel, faithful in implementing the means of grace. And uh, I pray that those who are not genuine would come to faith and would be genuinely saved. And those who are genuine believers, that we would help one another persevere all the way to the end, that we might be found blameless before Christ at His coming. We thank you for all of this and your goodness to us. It's in Christ's name. Amen.